All right, all right. Welcome, welcome back to our after, se after lunch session. So, so uh, thank you, thank you for coming back, um, and uh, a very warm welcome to the session. We want to discuss the overall priorities uh, for the European Union. You have seen in our memos we talk about uh, being braver, being greener, being fairer. And we have, of course, very specific recommendations um, to the various commissioners and the commission president. But we want to use this panel really to get um, outside perspectives from uh, people outside of Bruegel that um, are in the policy-making process or used to be in the policy-making process also uh, and, and have their views um, and uh, then, of course, have a discussion among ourselves and get you into the discussion uh, through questions and answers. Uh, if you want to ask a question, uh, please use uh, Slido. Um, BAM19 is the, uh, the word to get into Slido, so sli.do on your smartphone. Um, and if you find a question that you like in particular and you want me to ask it, you need to like it, right? So, so the more people like a question, the more it moves up um, in the Q&A in the uh, that I can see on my screen. Um, but uh, before, uh, before coming to the questions, let's come first to the panelists. And I'm, of course, delighted uh, to uh, welcome uh, four excellent panelists. Lorenzo Benismaghi uh, is the chairman of the board of Societe Generale um, and a former board member, uh, executive board member of the European Central Bank. <coughs> Sven Giegold is an MEP uh, from the Green Party. Um, uh, Danuta Hübner is a member uh, of the European Parliament uh, from the EPP group. And last but not least, Peivi Leino-Sandberg is a professor um, of transnational European law at the University of Helsinki. Um, and uh, I think it would be uh, appropriate to, uh, to start perhaps with um, uh, our elected uh, politician from the EPP group, the largest parliamentary group, uh, Danuta Hübner, uh, to, to kick us off with a few remarks on where she sees the key issues, the key priorities for the coming years and uh, what we, we should be focusing on. Danuta. Do something, because it doesn't sound like working, but if it works, okay, it's fine, okay. Thank you uh, very much. And uh, as I am just, we are after the elections and the elections were mostly about very narrow sectorial issues which are very close to to ordinary citizens, I just would like to, to maybe give you a bit broader perspective on issues which I see as, as absolutely challenging, but which are of more horizontal nature. And I would like to speak on, on three issues, on the uh, global environment in which European Union will be functioning. I would like to say a few words of, on, on certain characteristics of the big items agenda, which we have, and I think which is not uh, contested, and the third thing I would like to mention is the capabilities the union needs to, 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 to cope with those uh, challenges which are ahead of us. So with regard to the global environment, I think it's extremely important to realize that we are seeing a, a growing assertiveness of a new unpredictable actors. We are seeing also an increased competition of the, for the uh, powers. We are also seeing not only in Europe, but also globally, the rising tide of authoritarianism. And also, I think the, the what is uh, probably not yet appreciated sufficiently is that global economic situation is getting worse. And I think for the Union, it will be a big challenge if all the institutions we have created after the 
the crisis uh, to increase resilience of Europe, this will be a test for those institutions. We will have for the first time the SSM, the resolution, working uh, in the times of recession or, or crisis. I hope we will pass this uh, test. And I think for the Union, it will be very important to understand that we have to acquire this capacity to, um, to, to be the first to act. Uh, we, we don't have this uh, capacity for the time um, uh, being. And we, I, I, I believe we are also very bad in, in shifting and moving from the traditional uh, reactive approach to everything that is happening around Europe uh, to a proactive one. I think so we will have to face this uh, challenge if we really want to uh, become a leader in global influence and also I, I would say as a condenser of liberal order which will be also the, the global challenge. Then on the agenda I think we have had so many discussions and so many papers, communications and uh, uh, declarations that I think the big item agenda is practically already um, in, in, in place um, and I also think that still there are two challenges as I see them to do those big issues. First of all, uh, that they, uh, those, those uh, problems that we are facing, they cannot be solved or achieved by individual efforts of individual uh, countries, especially if we, uh, they cannot become the, uh, the victims of the whims of uh, uh, Eurosceptic national uh, leaders. And also I think that all those things which we have on our big item uh, agenda, they cannot be solved by sectorial policies by fragmentary um, uh, approach. So this is a comprehensive agenda, it's a strategic agenda, uh, and it requires probably a different way of, of, of moving forward. And the third issue, which is um, uh, the, the, the capability of Europe to cope with all uh, things, and here I would say uh, the first uh, difficulty I, I see for Europe, uh, that uh, we um, tend to be divided on the attitude towards authoritarian uh, challenge. And I think we are far too often uh, going too soft on that uh, danger uh, just to avoid conflicts among member states. And I think it's a very bad uh, choice and uh, because I think the unity, political unity and any other unity which we need in, in Europe starts with the unity on principles, starts with unity on, on purposes and this is something which is lacking. Secondly, we are in an intergovernmentalism trap and I think we finally have to understand it. And uh, I also uh, think that this increased role of the national strength in our, um, uh, the way we do policies and the institutional mechanism of running the European uh, Union, this had very negative impact on the quality of the European project. Thirdly, we need effective and efficient uh, institutions and here we can discuss a lot what's happening in yes. the Parliament and the Commission. I also hope that the European Council with Charles Michel will not become a Jurassic Park with the national narrow um, uh, interest. Uh, so that's my, my also hope. And the last thing I didn't mention is of course Brexit. I think Brexit goes across uh, everything that we that is important for Europe today and I think we underestimate not only the initial shock which is, uh, we don't know, depends whatever the way uh, our friends will be leaving the European Union, there will be a shock, but there will be a lot of aftershocks. I think we will be, uh, what we have now, which is withdrawal, it, we will see how boring it is once the challenges of negotiating the future will, uh, will start, because we will be talking to somebody that is outside our value structure, uh, 
which we, whom we would like to keep within our value structure, but this, this new partner will be outside our institutional structure, which will make it uh, very difficult. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Danuta. And uh, there was a lot of echo. If we can try to improve that in the next intervention, that would be great. Um, uh, but but uh, certainly one important point you made is, is of course, that um, uh, our capacity to act may, may not be quite as good um, as, as we would like it to see. And you uh, sort of raised the question, and I think that's a nice quote, is the European Council going to be uh, going to be the Jurassic Park. C cannot uh, be, must not be a Jurassic Park. Well, it must hope. not be, but <laughs> can it be one? Can and, it be, yeah. uh, and that seems to suggest that you see uh, a significant part of the problems in our capacity to act in the European Council, but perhaps that's a, an interpretation of what you just said. But per perhaps you, you can say a bit, bit more about, uh, since you are also from the European Parliament, about uh, where you see um, the role of the European Parliament in setting the agenda and driving, driving the debate forward. Because in a sense, we've seen um, this, this European Council conclusion in CBU setting out a strategic agenda. Um, and that was before the European elections, so before the voters uh, got a say on what, what shall be the future agenda. Uh, and now we have an election result. And um, so far, we, I don't think we have heard a lot of sort of overall strategic orientation from the European Parliament. I mean, are you working on this? Um, and how do you want to play into this? And, and perhaps I, uh, you use this mic because it might work better. Shall we try with it? You know, it's, it's very difficult to, to respond to your question because we have now, um, uh, which is also one of those boring issues, we have for the first time, after negotiating in 2016 a better lawmaking interinstitutional agreement, now we have the three European institutions, the Parliament, the Council and the uh, Commission to sit together and to decide on the multi-annual programming, which uh, means that uh, uh, for the first time, European Parliament will be involved in setting this mid-term, or as we say, long-term uh, multi-annual strategic uh, agenda, which normally was just the decision of the European Council and then taken and internalized by the Commission, converted into the um, priorities by the Commission. So, so there is institutionally the possibility of having uh, the three institutions sitting uh, together, but you are right, because of the elections, the parliament is late, and we started in July to work in political groups on the, on the, uh, on the program, and it's not uh, finished, but having said that, uh, parliament, uh, I, I see parliament now as the institution that has to finally understand that the leadership belongs to those who really represent the citizens, and I hope that the new parliament, in spite of all the weaknesses and characteristics, which maybe Sam will also uh, see uh, that the parliament will, will, uh, will be really able to go on with, uh, as, as, uh, uh, as an institution that understands the responsibility. Leadership is first of all about uh, responsibility. Well, thank you. Um, so I think to, to get a different perspective and perhaps not a parliamentarian perspective as a next perspective, I thought we, we could turn to, to Lorenzo to get the perspective uh, from, uh, from business, uh, from uh, a big bank, um, but perhaps also from someone who's been deeply, of course, involved in, in, in the European policymaking as a, as a former board member of the ECB. Um, please. Yes, I don't know if my mic works better. Yes, maybe. 
No, I think first I want to congratulate uh, Bruegel for, for this book, which is, um, I think it's very useful for the parliament actually, which is going to go to the hearings of the commissioner. I understand the European Central Bank president is a bit late because it was today. Because there are no doubts that uh, European institutions, uh, like all institutions, have a problem of uh, legitimacy and, uh, and accountability. And what do you need to restore um, accountability? It's not to do what most politicians do, that is to promise uh, motherhood and apple pie, uh, and then say, you know, it was too difficult uh, to realize it uh, after four years. I think what we need is uh, people who uh, make clear commitments, and I think there are clear priorities indicated in, uh, in this book, but also people who understand what it takes to achieve uh, these uh, priorities, and people that are committed to do whatever it takes, if I can use this word, um, to, uh, to achieve that. And if they are not willing to do whatever it takes, then they should not uh, apply for a commission job or an ECB job. I ask myself, incidentally, when some people say that ECB cannot achieve 2% inflation, why are people sitting in the council if they are not willing to do whatever it takes to achieve that goal, given that this is a statutory goal? So I think in order to rebuild the credibility of institutions, we need people that are committed to priorities, but to do whatever it takes. And I think uh, in this book, you have a lot of, um, of uh, recommendations uh, to, uh, to achieve the final goal. Um, some of them are, are difficult to achieve, and I will maybe give one example or two. Um, you know that uh, one of the uh, key objectives of the previous commission was uh, banking union, and a lot of work has been done it's not final, and the book gives some ideas of how to finalize, but there are some people who already say, well, you know, banking union, it's difficult, let's move to the next step, which is a capital market union. And if, you, if, if I would ask around uh, the room today who is in favor of having a capital market union in Europe, everybody would raise his hand. I heard so many prime ministers, finance ministers saying, this is what we need, we have to work on this. But uh, my feeling is that they don't really understand what it means. They don't, mean, they don't really understand what is needed to achieve this. And so the risk is that we create an illusion in the people, in the, in the, parla in the parliament, in the institutions, that we, achieve, we, we aim at a priority that we are not able to achieve because we are not ready to negotiate. And let me give you one issue, one simple uh, example, looking at the comparison with the US. How has the US capital market developed? It has developed originally through the trading of one security, the US Treasury. We don't have this in Europe. So we have to be very clear, and this is one of the questions we have to ask the next commissioner for financial affairs. If we don't have a safe asset, what is called a safe asset, if we don't work to have a safe asset in Europe, we will not have a capital market union. So just forget. So if you are not, I would say to the commissioner, if you are not willing to really work hard and convince countries and find solutions to define a safe asset that can be traded and used by banks and so forth, 
then let's forget about the capital market illusion. Let's not create illusions. And I would say there are so many other examples. And of course, the relationship between capital market union and banking union is very close. We will not have a capital market union without a banking union. These are just two examples I wanted to give to, uh, to, to, to suggest that really we are at this next phase uh, of institutions where you have a new commission, a new central bank. Really, they have to commit to things that they really believe and that they're really uh, committed to do things that ultimately will be able to deliver because the, the problem in Europe is an issue of delivery uh, for the common people, for uh, especially those that are less privileged. If we are not able to deliver, most often is that because people have not understood what it takes, whatever it takes to achieve that. So I, I wanted to make these little spots for, for the book yes. uh, that, that contains a lot of recommendations. Some can be improved, but I think it's important to have a good team uh, at the start of this new process of people that are really committed uh, to do whatever it takes to, to give us, to reach us to the next level of integration. Well, Lorenzo, uh, since the author of the, uh, the memo you just referred to on financial services just entered the room, Nicolas Veron, um, let me quiz you a little bit further on this. So, so you basically said uh, we cannot really achieve a capital markets union, a truly integrated European capital market without having a safe asset. And if I understand you correctly, also it's going to be basically impossible to do it um, with, uh, with a banking union. But perhaps you can elaborate a little bit more on, on the second point. Can we have a banking union without significantly more fiscal integration than we do currently or not? And if we cannot, should we just forget about banking unions? No, I, th I think we need uh, a safe asset for the financial markets to work and for the banks to use in their liquidity. I mean, I don't want to be too technical, but we need an instrument that is available for the banking to the banking system like it is in the US. There are many proposals that have been made. I think Nicolas says we should work on this. No, and this is one of the key issues. And incidentally, the banking union and capital market union are closely interrelated. I don't think we will be able to have a full banking union unless we have a capital market union, simply because if we don't have a capital market union, banks, the process of aggregation of banks, will create banks that are too big. Because in Europe, without a capital market, all the, uh, uh, the asset side of the banking system will have to remain on the balance sheet of the banks, cannot be resold in the capital market as it is in the US. So the two things are, are closely linked. I think Nicolas in his uh, chapter has done a very good thing, but I think we need to go to be much more ambitious. He criticizes the previous commission as not being ambitious enough, and he's right. But I think we have to force this commission to be very ambitious in uh, putting in front of all the ministers who every day say, we need a capital market union. We need to tell them, if you really need, mean it, then we need to make progress on a common instrument, a common financial instrument, which doesn't necessarily mean a sharing of fiscal policy. Uh, there are many proposals that try to limit this, but this is a priority for Europe to have a more resilient uh, uh, Eurozone uh, uh, economy. Okay. Well, 
let's let's afterwards because I want to bring in the other two panelists also, um, and perhaps next uh, I want to turn to to Sven uh, Sven Diegold. Of course, you've worked a lot on the financial issues, but uh, I'm sure you don't want to focus only on uh, banking and capital. So so please, what what do you think should be the priorities uh, uh, going forward um, from the Green Party? Climate is of course I guess high on the agenda, but please. I think, uh, oh no, this sounds uh, quite reasonable. Uh, I think uh, we can already feel uh, the opportunities uh, of that difficult situation. While we are sitting here, we can hardly hear each other. So I could hardly understand you. It was very difficult. You suffered the same. Why is it? We have in the back a cooling device, uh, which makes a lot of noise uh, and uh, worsens even more the acoustic condition. So we feel here on the panel uh, what is to come. So what is to come if we do not stop climate change? Uh, and uh, uh, climate change is such a major challenge. Uh, and, uh, and, that and we have at the same time, now we are, we are seeing the signals and they are multiplying day by day. Uh, the signals of uh, economic cooling while we have not resolved the structural problems of the global financial economy. And now the question is, will we this time be more courageous and use that opportunity in order to reform, by reforming our economy, seeing there a new growth potential by um, transforming our economy and responding to the right um, expectations of uh, all most young people in Europe to really get serious on the Paris Agreement while at the same time investing in our uh, shared prosperity. And I think that is why I like very much uh, the title of your book, yeah? uh, Braver, Greener and Fairer. This is, I think, a really good uh, motto for what is to come. So before we move into the Capital Markets Union, I think that is the big picture. But um, everybody wants to be green at the moment. That's really fashionable. Everything is green deal, green here, green there. But uh, it doesn't help to talk about green change. It needs to deliver by bold policies. And that means we need to get serious to, uh, to leverage our opportunity in green investment. And by that way, going through all the different polluting sectors of our economy in order to transform them. I was very glad to hear that Madame Lagarde today in, in Econ announced to use the uh, uh, opportunities of the ECB to help easing the financing conditions for that green transformation and on the other hand, making it more difficult uh, to finance the wrong things. And, uh, and I think that with this spirit, we need now to get into the five years to come. And there I would like to follow on what you were saying on the role of the parliament. And let us be honest, uh, it, we, after we got in the elections with a high turnout, a mandate to really drive the direction of policy. And we, did, we failed to deliver this. Why did we fail? Because the parliament, the, the constructive groups in the European parliament couldn't agree on a common program and candidate before before the council uh, was basically closing the door and making the decisions. And this is something where we have to deliver a response because we may not allow that after five years,
people will say, well, European democracy, you told us last time, uh, this is the really important vote, and afterwards, it was all done behind the closed doors of the council. So therefore, it is important that the European Parliament, uh, after one party said, we only want this candidate, and two other parties said, we want everyone but not this candidate, that after this uh, failure to act, uh, we get set the right democratic rules so that the next European elections become a real choice. So we must reform the democratic functioning, uh, otherwise we will ridiculize ourselves. This is a big job for AFCO uh, and, uh, and for, the, for the member states. And at the same time, the parliament must now get back into the deal of the new work program of the commission and uh, has to leave uh, um, its marks there and be bold, brave, fairer and greener in this regard. Thank you, Sven. Um, there's lots of things I could pick on now, but let me just focus on one point, which is bold policy action as regards the greening of our, our societies and our economies. In our memos, we have one sentence where we say, citizens want you to deliver on this, but they will dislike the consequences of what it means for their daily life. Be that the social consequences, be that just you know their daily patterns of transport, they will not be able to as easily as before fly to, to Mallorca for their next holidays, uh, and so on and so forth. So, so can, you, can you tell us a little bit more what's the, your thinking and the green thinking about you know, how to manage the social fallout, the possible social fallout of, of a green transition? Well, already we are starting from a high level of uh, inequalities and felt inequalities. So therefore, when we green the economy, this may not increase again uh, economic inequalities. Macron has experienced uh, that this doesn't lead to anywhere. So this means for us, the key challenge in order to achieve the green transformation is, on the one hand, we need policies for sectors, but we also need macro instruments. So we have to give CO2 a price in order to be able to achieve on the climate uh, traje trajectory. If we give uh, CO2 a price, this will of course mean that those who are rich can continue to fly to Mallorca and those who can't afford it will have difficulties. This will certainly not lead to the great positive response by most citizens. So therefore, it is absolutely fundamental if we financialize the achievement of the climate objectives, then we have to use the, the, mo the money raised in order to limit the negative consequences. So inequalities after green taxation or emission trading have to be, inequalities have to be lower than before. And therefore our proposal is to use the revenue and redistribute it to the citizens so that those who are less well off will be economically stronger after the green tax reform than before. Only if people at the lower end of the income distribution feel that this has a net positive effect, they will agree with this. And lastly, you were saying uh, it needs also public investment so that there are real alternatives. So if uh, there are no green mobility alternatives and the same applies to other areas, then people will be very unhappy if uh, uh, the um, destructive forms of mobility become more expensive, the same with housing sure. and so on. 
Well, let me turn to, to you, Pavi. You've listened now a lot to, uh, to, uh, to our three previous panelists, and I think one point that came up a lot is uh, democracy, who sets the agenda, uh, is it the council, is it the parliament? You are, of course, an expert for European law, transnational law, uh, and I know that you have a keen interest in the topic of political commission. Can you in, enlighten us on where you see the political dimension of this from your point of view, an academic point of view? Thank you, and I, I must actually say it's, it's, it's fascinating listening to you to list out different policy areas where you would want the next commission to be active. But in fact, for me, as you say, the most interesting question is in fact uh, whether the new commission will continue its very sort of um, on this path of having a very strong uh, self-identity as the political commission. And I think the commissions we've had in the past, every one of them has had both technical and political tasks. But in the latest one, uh, this political self-identity has been tremendously uh, strong. And I think if I'm allowed, I could look a little bit back and, and look, at, look at these uh, two different roles, because in a way, I think there might be something to learn from this as well. And I think... If you look at this, you can look at it at least in two different ways. And the, the first one is, what do we mean by this political commission and, and, and having a more political EU, if you like? And I think in the background is a very good idea that EP elections, in fact, would translate into a political agenda at EU level. And, and I must say immediately, this is something I'm all for. Uh, even though I do see that... The, we have a very long way to go before we actually reach that stage where EP elections would set an EU agenda in the same way as national elections uh, do at national level. But that uh, being said, I think this is exactly what should happen. Uh, in particular, when we look at many of the policy areas that were mentioned here, we're talking about deeper economic and fiscal integration, for example. Uh, that would, I think, require much stronger democratic anchoring at EU level than what we have uh, today. Migration is a similar area where we really cannot uh, rely on national structures anymore, but also do not have functioning structures at uh, EU level. Um, so I think that is, that is a very good idea. But then I think there is an other element in this discussion that I'm not so very keen on, and I think... For a law professor, that is the indication that perhaps law has become a little bit less significant in, in the EU than what it has been before. Um, and I think this is a very fundamental change in, in how the EU operates, because law has always been tremendously important. It has not only provided us with the tools uh, with which we operate, but also provided the constraints. It has been the common ground um, and for member states, that has always been important, that this is what we jointly agreed, this is what we're going to do. Um, and that this is something that both the Commission and the Court will then, in future, um, guarantee for us. And I think this is something that has changed. Uh, we've got, had a Commission that sees the treaties much less as constraints, that is very willing to see flexibility uh, in, in new ways. Um, but this also, I think, has affected the role of the Commission in those areas where its function hasn't been political, but has been more that of a technical Commission. And I think there are many examples of this. One of them would be infringements, enforcing EU law, where we have 
uh, communication from the Commission uh, from 2017 where it says infringement will be used much more selectively. We will see a strategic choice. We will select which cases are important. We see this in the area of, of stability and growth that where we during and after the crisis made very big delegations to the Commission in the faith that it would be the very objective, hard enforcer of rules, unlike the Council, which we believe to be too political. And now we end up with the Commission which says, in fact, we're going to be very political in enforcing these rules as well. We have to be uh, selective. But I think the final example is, is the rule of law discussion, where we now have rebelling states saying, listen, Commission, you're the political Commission, you're being selective, um, and this is not about enforcing EU law, this is about political uh, point scoring. So I think uh, that is an area that I'm actually very, very mm, worried about. I, I like the Commission being political in the first way, but I don't really like it being political in the second way. Yes, so, uh, so we are still a far way, uh, away, far away from really having the European Parliament to be the agenda setter, um, uh, as it is, as national parliaments are in respect to, uh, to, to, national, uh, to national governments. And you were quite critical of a political interpretation of the Commission when it comes, uh, the Commission's role, when it comes to the enforcement um, of, of clearly established uh, fiscal rules. Um, so, so I think this is two important points, and I'm sure others will, will want to kick in. Isn't that a too negative take? So we had a European election, it was seen as a big climate-driven uh, uh, thing, and then an EPP Commission President candidate comes with a Green Deal, sometimes even a Green New Deal. So can't we be a bit more positive and saying that this election and the, the weeks of uh, debate had an effect. So rather than saying, blah, 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 blah. so whether this is delivered, I agree, that's another matter, but uh, that was not the greatest wish of the member states to have now an EPP commission president uh, calling for a green deal. Uh, sorry, uh, I have to ask you also as a think tank to be a bit more positive on this. Yeah, uh, uh, I was uh, only yeah? taking up uh, the, the, the point made uh, and wanted to throw, uh, ah. jump it at you. Okay, so uh, I made I my point, <laughs> and of course you shouldn't <laughs> criticize can I, uh, 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 I would uh, love to uh, hear uh, also from the others. Can I just have two comments? Uh, yeah, yeah, because yes. Are you uh, unhappy that the EPP uh, if I am unhappy, uh, elected do, do president... Do we have uh, the politics? I mean, uh, are you unhappy that uh, the elected uh, EP president of the European Commission has put forward a Green New Deal? I'm very happy that the climate crisis issue is on the agenda and I hope it will be taken seriously um, and I, I regret very much that the uh, sense yeah. political group did not vote okay. uh, because then she would of hear course. that she has also support of those who really care. But in this context I would like to say one thing because uh, these elections have been, I said, these were different elections. First of all, uh, the turnout, and I can tell you on average, of course, it was higher, but we had countries like my home country, Poland, where the participation doubled. So that's really a qualitative, not only quantitative uh, change towards the importance, towards seeing and understanding the importance of the European Union. But the most important thing is that I think for the first time, I don't remember 79 elections, but I think for the first time, we did not have uh, during those elections 
28 national narratives, national stories. I think we had issues that were present across Europe in the uh, debates uh, that also provoked by citizens, by civil society. And the two issues that were everywhere on the agenda during those elections were the climate crisis. Uh, we also had young people in Poland on strike, on the streets. Uh, we had also Polish um, uh, Greta Thunberg. And so there is an inc enormous increase of awareness. And the second issue was rule of law. You would be surprised, but I think when you look at national analysis of national debates during the elections, rule of law, meaning fighting for European values, understanding the importance of European values was also a common topic. But I have to say one thing on the, on the capital markets uh, union. Uh, because you, you remember when we had Jonathan Hale five years ago when the whole agenda to create the capital market union was sort of established and we understood that it's not only the law but also making the, the demand, the consumer's part of pushing also and understanding that the shift uh, towards uh, capital market importance in the, in the area of savings, how, how important it is. We, we had all of that. And the Commission last year, if you, I think in spring last year, was most of the uh, new legal initiatives to, 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 to sort of launch the uh, establishment of, of uh, market union. My worry today is that in the context of Brexit, there might be also a rethinking of uh, what type of capital market union, European Union, less UK uh, will need. And it's fine with me. The problem is that can also slow down the, what is already on the agenda for the capital market union. And sorry, but for the, um, uh, for the safe assets, uh, the um, sovereign bond back, um, whatever, securities, this, this is already in place. And also, if you look at the agenda of making euro more global in terms of currency, uh, it Gianluca. also assumes uh, those issues, but they don't belong here, but, but yes. we are moving. What I wanted to say, that's not so, like... So there are questions coming in, and uh, I think they are connected to this capital markets uh, point, and let me direct them to, to you, uh, uh, Lorenzo. Um, uh, and then afterwards, I do want to come back, actually, to this democracy uh, point mm. once again, but let's talk a bit about uh, sort of the technical side, which is the capital market side. So uh, a person called Anonymous uh, asked the following question to you, uh, not just to you, I guess to all of us. There won't be a safe asset. What banking or capital union can we achieve without any? And which? which capital and banking union can we achieve without any safe asset? There won't be a safe asset. That's the statement given by Mr. Anonymous. So what can we achieve without a safe asset? So uh, if I can link back to, to what you were saying, the, you know, the political commission and technical commission. In the economic, monetary, financial area, we need Europe to progress. So we need to give more power to Europe. And this can be done only with the agreement of all the member states. And in order to convince the member states, you cannot have a technocrat. You need a political commission. The political commission has to sit down with all the member states and explain to them that if we bring things together, we are better off. This is why we need a political decision in this area. I'm not talking about you know, managing the, the, the fiscal rules, which is, you know, to some extent, uh, uh, nearly mechanical. We need a commission which has a vision of how to improve things and how to convince countries to create something common. And the safe asset 
we have many proposals, and I think from a technical point of view, and it can be explained, it's not that impossible. And I think uh, you address this in your, in partly in your book, you have made many research, but it's clear we have to explain this. Unless we have something which is more common, we will not have a, a capital market. So not, let's not create the illusion with the people in the streets that we are going to make huge step forward. We can make them only if we, all the politicians, starting from uh, the CDU, sits at the table, uh, the CDU, the, uh, the, the socialists, the Greens, whatever, in the parliament, in uh, the European Council, and they decide that, you know, whatever timetable, we, we, we do this. We have done it in the past. I mean, uh, if somebody has said, uh, we can create monetary, we'll never create monetary union because in order to create monetary union, we need uh, 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 a central bank where uh, Luxembourg has one vote like Germany. And right. this will never happen. The Americans have said this all the time. This will never happen, and it happens. So I think, like you were saying, we should be a bit more optimistic, and uh, Bruegel should promote a little bit more uh, optimism well, in the feasibility I'm, I'm of certain things. Uh, and and uh, in the wisdom, in the end, of the heads of states that understand that this is good for everybody. Well, well uh, I'm certainly optimist and therefore put an as aspira aspirational title on the book, but uh, I do, do, do just want to read some questions that we get because I think it helps us sort of, it's a realism check also. And, and one issue that uh, sort of talking about this democracy point and, you know, strong political leadership, the commission that leads the... Uh, and brings the member states together. So one point here is, uh, is made by, by Dimitri uh, Korpakis. Um, he says, um, how can we connect better the work of the European Parliament with the one of national parliaments so that we increase ownership of European policies by member states? Sven, do you want to uh, talk about this? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that question because uh, I think no commission can ever be powerful enough, and not, at least not in a moment when the question of integration is so highly politicized as it is now, uh, to convince the member states. So uh, I think that these are choices which are made in the member states, and you have to win the debates in the key member states. And we saw, and I found that very encouraging, even if I disagree about lots of things with Monsieur Macron, his European spirit and his willingness to drive things forward, that was right. And we, he was not even receiving an answer by the German government on his proposals, unprecedented in the past. So if a French government makes a bold proposal, they receive at least an answer by a German government. You don't have to agree on everything, but that is the question, whether in Germany there is a willingness to act. Very Before the summer, my view on the autumn was extremely gloomy. I thought Italy would be a total disaster. Now we have new hope from Italy. And also, even from the United Kingdom, God bless you, yeah? It seems that there is uh, some hope finally. So this is an opportunity to, to, set, uh, to set a positive train in motion, but it needs to convince the national public. And uh, the, for this, there, it doesn't help to have a bit better fora between national parliaments and and the European Parliament. This is a, a decisive um, a choice by political parties, which are at the same time in the European Parliament and in their national parliaments, to speak with one voice. 
And, uh, and I have to say, we do this, and uh, I can only, and now it's very simple. I think the biggest obstacle for European integration was uh, a scared German government. That was the biggest obstacle in the last years, and this is something which can change. And you, you are seeing now, in two weeks, we will have a strong and bold climate protection law by the current government. And uh, the second objective for the strong green wave in Germany is to push that government into a more pro-European position uh, and a more bold uh, European position. But you have to do this in each member state. And let me only say one sentence on what Danuta told me because I have to respond to this. Sure. Why did we not vote for Ursula von der Leyen despite my praise? I have to say one thing. It's very simple. If you want votes from politicians, it's uh, you need to deliver on some of the key demands which we have put to her in private and in public, and you also have to deliver on certain of the positions uh, where which we regard, and this dis negotiation is not over, but she tried with green headlines to get the votes for which you have to deliver green policy and also position for greens. We are not for free, we are a self-confident political party. We want our share of the program and of the positions. And if she's now ready, after that very narrow majority in the parliament, to treat us equally in that regard, then we are looking forward uh, to another outcome when it comes to the vote on the commission. Okay, let me, let me ask uh, two questions to you, Pevi, um, which uh, also come from the audience here and which are in a sense connected. I mean, one is on um, the European Parliament and one is on the EU institutions in general. The European Parliament, Antonella asks uh, whether uh, uh, the European Parliament that is now more fragmented than in the past, whether that will be a more political European Parliament or perhaps um, uh, a less uh, organized one where Eurosceptics will uh, have a stronger say. And uh, the questions on the EU institutions um, are about trust. Um, without trust, says Mr. Wieck, without trust, any policy shall fa fail whatever the political program anywhere in the world. How could the EU institutions recover lost trust? Very, very, very big questions, and, and, and I hope I can also comment a little bit on, on what was said before, because I think Lorenzo and I probably disagree on a lot of issues relating to, to economic and fiscal integration, um, I think. But I think one of the key issues here is that I think when we start talking about um, social security structures, for example, um, I don't particularly mind whether those decisions are taken at national level or EU level. I think both are very good. What I do fundamentally mind about is that these are political questions and they need to be subject to democratic debate. Um, and so I think it's not so much a question of what the central bank wants or what the commission wants. What I mind about is that these are a result of proper political debates. And in that sense, um, I must add, I do like politics and I, I'm very much looking forward to the new parliament actually hopefully being a very political parliament and debating issues properly um, at EU level. Uh, the second question was about trust, and here I always go back to an issue that is very close to my heart, which is uh, the relationship between democracy and, and transparency. Uh, and I think if you look at the, the past Commission's agenda, it, they've been very big about being political and wanting to be more democratic. But I think for that point of view, what is 
I mean, there are a lot of things that matter, not only what happens in the EP elections, which is a development that I very much welcome. There are a lot of things happening between elections, and we also need to look at that. And if we look at what the current commission has done, it hasn't really performed very well. It's been fighting in the court uh, against increasing transparency in the EU legislative procedure, it's been fighting against NGOs who've been looking for access uh, to impact assessments to see how key choices at EU level have been made, saying EU citizens have no business uh, being informed about these issues while matters are pending uh, and, and you have no rights of participation. And I think we're looking forward to, to having a more democratic EU. We're looking forward to increasing trust that comes through being more open and allowing people to actually contribute to what is going on uh, at EU level. So I got a few questions on Brexit. You won't believe it, but there are a few questions on Brexit. And I, I, I do want to get uh, get the panelists to talk a bit about Brexit. Because, um, Danuta, I think you said um, in your initial remarks that we underestimate the impact of Brexit. And I, I think someone in the audience wanted to hear uh, why you think so. But I think, uh, Lorenzo, of course, you as a big, uh, big bank representative, uh, we w I think we would really uh, like to hear from you. What's your take on, not on what outcome we will see, but more on what would a no-deal Brexit really mean for, for the financial system, for the EU financial system, and, uh, and how you think the EU financial system should, should go forward. And of course, you, uh, Sven, you mentioned um, uh, that the Brits may have seen the light or something of that sort. Um, uh, and of course, uh, any political take you may have, um, I think will be appreciated by the audience. But let me start with Danuta and perhaps with a little bit uh, shorter intervention so that we can, can have a bit of a discussion on Brexit. Danuta. Why, why should we underestimate it? Uh, because I, I think we, we underestimate uh, because we have not done, because we couldn't make, I think, a so-called impact assessment of what will happen once we have the dismantling of all those 45 years old relationship that goes very, that go very deep into the uh, economy on, on both sides of the, of the channel. We have done a lot uh, on the, in the context of uh, no-deal Brexit to understand the, the consequences, but we all know that in case of no-deal Brexit, all the um, contingency measures at the level of the companies, at the level of European Commission, at the European institutions, European level, at the level of, uh, of individual uh, member states, they are only to uh, aiming at mitigating, uh, reducing the final impact, but uh, we c you cannot through uh, unilateral measures just prevent those consequences from happening. So this is something I think which is underestimated and which is uh, the second thing I believe is very important is that, of course, big companies for the last three years, practically at least, they have been investing millions of, uh, of euro in uh, preparing for any version of the, uh, of the Brexit. But we also underestimate that we have in Europe, I think, around 30 million small and medium-sized uh, companies that very often 
directly or indirectly depend also on British markets or British small and medium-sized company depending on the uh, continental market uh, that uh, will uh, that will we're not able actually to to get uh, preferred. So if you want me to, to 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 say in short that I think that the cost that will come are clearly underestimated and uh, okay. the cost will wipe away many small enterprises from the surface of the uh, of Europe. Uh, when so and when very yeah. short because the Commission has yeah. the right to. We 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 underestimated the Brexit uh, first because we don't understand each other, in the sense that uh, I just thought you know when you you asked uh, what 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 is Brexit and you know Brexit means Brexit and okay what what does what does it mean? It means regains control, and once Johnson was said to regain control to do what, and he answered to have our cake and eat it. And this is the basis means you cannot talk with people that think like that. The second element, and this is why we have come at three years that we have no solution. The second element I want to mention that is a big risk because there are so many non-linearities. I mean, if you remember Lehman Brothers, how Lehman Brothers produced all that mess, how can you explain econometrically all this? It's very difficult. And in the end, it was an issue of emotion, of uh, people seeing on, on screens, on the television all over the world, uh, uh, people lining up for the banks, people uh, being fired. So th what can happen if this get becomes a, a global, uh, uh, say, media event with people having shortages in England of some products, some crisis? This can become a multiplier effect that is very difficult to measure. And this is the biggest uncertainty. I think that uh, it's very difficult to, to, to even to understand. Brexit is not doable simply, it's in short, yeah. On Brexit. <laughs> well, uh, first again, let me stay the positive person here. W uh, think back three years ago, who would have believed Europe stays united uh, over three years on that issue? Uh, and that was laying the basis for making it now possible that in Britain there is a new chance of reverting all this disaster. So this is really an achievement, seeing all the divisions in Europe which we have on, uh, on several issues. Second, now it's up to, to the people in the United Kingdom. And, and the key question is, will they be, will they be putting their future uh, of the country and also of our continent before party political egoisms, who becomes what afterwards? And if we see, they, it seems Johnson is not able to get his uh, no-deal Brexit against the parliament. But afterwards, there will be some sort of people decision. And uh, in this debate, it will be crucial to be as emotional, as strong to the British people and united uh, as those who want to keep uh, Britain uh, in a European future as those uh, who argue against it. And that is the national debate and we in Europe, uh, I think uh, on the continent, our role is to, to signal uh, the po a positive attitude despite all what happened. Uh, that is the only role we can take and beyond that it's up now to the pro-Europeans in Britain to win mm. uh, and uh, to build the campaign which is strong enough to win against the Brexiteers. Okay, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this panel. Um, I do want to thank all the panelists and we will immediately uh, move to uh, the commissioner uh, talking about trade policy, 
uh, and Cecilia, I think we, we start your session right now. Please join me in thanking uh, the panelists. Thank you, Lorenz. Thank you.